So the Subcommittee for Indigenous Peoples of the United States will now come to order. The subcommittee is meeting today to hear testimony on Examining Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, the Implications of the Supreme Court's Ruling on Tribal Sovereignty. Under Committee Rule 4F, any oral opening statements at hearings are limited to the chair and the ranking minority member or their designees. This will allow us to hear from our witnesses sooner and help members keep to their schedule. Therefore, I ask unanimous consent that all other members' opening statements be made part of the hearing record. They are submitted to the clerk by 5 p.m. today or the close of the hearing, whichever comes first. Hearing no objections, so ordered. Without objection, the chair may also declare a recess subject to the call of the chair. Hearing no objections, so ordered. As described in the notice statements, documents or motions must be submitted to the electronic repository at hnrcdocs at mail.house.gov. Members physically present should provide a hard copy for staff to distribute by email. Please note that members are responsible for their own microphones. As with our fully in-person meetings, members can be muted by staff only to avoid inadvertent background noise. Finally, members or witnesses experiencing technical problems should inform committee staff immediately. I would also like to thank the ranking member um, so that the change of time so that we could try to get the testimony in considering the votes we'll be having this afternoon. I will begin by recognizing myself for my opening statement. Good morning, and thank you all for joining us today at this important oversight titled Examining Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, the Implications of the Supreme Court's Ruling on Tribal Sovereignty. As many remember, the 2020 landmark U.S. Supreme Court ruling in McGirt v. Oklahoma recognized that Congress had never disestablished the Creek Reservation in eastern Oklahoma, reaffirming that it remained Indian country. The McGirt ruling was a victory for tribes across the country as it indicated the court's commitment to upholding treaty rights through historic legal precedent. Unfortunately, two years later, the court's ruling this summer in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta now serves as a sharp contrast to the McGirt ruling. In a 5-4 majority opinion, the court determined that state governments maintain inherent concurrent criminal jurisdiction over Indian country. More important for many, the Castro Huerta case overturned almost 200 years of precedent that I learned as the Marshall Trilogy. I learned this when I first started practicing law because it is seen as the bedrock foundation of Indian law. I don't know how many times I cited the trilogy in my cases. Roosterburg, Georgia, the third case in the trilogy, was decided in 1832, which, as Justice Gorsuch stated in his dissent, established the foundational rule that Native American tribes retain their sovereignty unless and until Congress ordains otherwise, close quote. The Marshall Trilogy of cases underpin not only recognition of uh, tribal state criminal relations, but many other foundational legal precedents governing tribal state, uh, tribal state relationships in a wide range of circumstances. It's often cited not just for criminal law, but also in the very much, in fact, sometimes more often in the civil contest. So the Castro Huerta case understandably sent shockwaves across Indian country and in the legal community, which understood its potential vast implications the missing and murdered indigenous women and people crisis, the aftermath of the McGirt case, and many other examples of the federal government's failure to recognize its trust responsibilities to investigate and prosecute crimes in Indian country 
are rooted in the federal government's failure to adequately fund and prioritize the safety of tribal communities. Castro Huerta has broad implications for Indian country, implications that vary deeply amongst tribes. Until Castro Huerta, states were largely excluded from Indian affairs unless Congress provided otherwise. Today, we are here to listen, to learn what this decision means from tribal leaders, from the administration, and from experts in the field. This is the beginning of our discussion on Castro Huerta. This hearing is not to advocate a particular solution or a particular piece of legislation. It is meant to better understand the nuances and impacts of the decision. The court's expansion of state criminal jurisdiction may add greater uncertainty over whom tribal citizens may or should call in response to a public safety emergency, what police force may be allowed to respond, and what authority um, tribes and tribal uh, uh, victims may look to to prosecute a case. Uh, prior to Castro Huerta, existing jurisdictions in Indian country were already complicated. The standard framework consisted of the federal government maintaining criminal jurisdiction alongside tribal governments depending on the offenses committed, who um, the status, the legal status of the, uh, both the victim and the offender. Exceptions to the framework, such as Public Law 280 states, existed. But importantly, though, Congress, not the Supreme Court, enacted those exceptions. Congress retained the authority to decide how and when the state was authorized to uh, operate within tribal lands. So Castro Huerta has complicated this existing patchwork of jurisdictions by adding in state authorities, leading to uncertainties that I discussed earlier. Tribal governments already face a variety of public safety crises, some of those issues we have discussed in this um, committee. Um, there's concerns about the murdered and missing indigenous people crisis being run, Uh, the lack of jurisdictional authority to respond or prosecute because of Oliphant, and just the lack of resources for their judiciary branch and um, their, police, uh, uh, their police branches. We know that the precise impacts of this case will look different for each tribe. That's why it's important for us to have this hearing today. Our witnesses hail from across the country and represent different legal perspectives as well as different legal nations. I'm grateful that we will hear testimony from the Cherokee Nation where the Castro Huerta case originated and from another Oklahoma tribe, the Muscogee Creek Nation, where the McGirt decision originated. Supreme Court cases rarely confine their impact to the jurisdictions where they originate. Indeed, the Supreme Court's decision to take a case often is precisely because of the national impact. Tribes in PL-280 states and tribes in non-PL-280 states who have fought intense battles within their states to protect tribal sovereignty from state intrusion are also present here today. We'll hear finally also from legal experts and and our first panel from the administration about the impacts that Castro Huerta may have in Indian country and more broadly. Uh, once again, I look forward to this discussion. I want to again thank my witnesses for their presence here today to share their expertise. And I would now like to recognize Ranking Member Obernolte for his opening statement. Thank you very much, Madam Chairman. And thank you for convening this hearing on what is really 
a, an extremely critical topic, the topic of whether or not states have criminal jurisdiction to prosecute crimes committed against Indians by non-Indians in Indian country. This uh, Huerta decision really has the potential of attacking tribal sovereignty in a lot of different parts of the country. Uh, certainly far, it's far, reaches far beyond just the territorial uh, dispute that's going on in eastern Oklahoma. Uh, I think that a couple of things should guide our discussion when we're talking about this important topic. First of all, the respect for tribal sovereignty, which I think is something that everyone on the subcommittee shares. Uh, but also, a conviction to avoid the kind of legal chaos that resulted after the McGirt Supreme Court decision. We had thousands of cases that were refiled in tribal and federal courts after that uh, on criminal convictions that had occurred years in the past. So I think it's important that we think about the implications of decisions that we might make in that respect. And I'd also like to ask that we consider the feelings and the well-beings of the victims of these crimes and of their families. Because when we allow a criminal case to be retried, we are essentially dragging all of those victims and their families through what for many of them was the worst experience of their life. So I'm hopeful that we can remember those victims when we have this discussion. And I also would like to make the point that all of this legal chaos from uh, McGirt all the way to Castro Huerta, could have been avoided had Congress done its job. Our job as lawmakers is to be explicit when we write laws. And because of the ambiguity that has persisted surrounding this issue, we're having courts issuing conflicting opinions in different jurisdictions, which is exactly the kind of thing that a nation who respects the, law, the rule of law should be trying to avoid. Uh, and if you look at the Castro Huerta decision, it, I mean, it's really a fascinating exercise in exactly uh, this problem because you've got Supreme Court justices on both sides of the issues making what seem to be very legitimate and well-reasoned arguments that completely contradict each other. So I'm very glad we're having this hearing. I'm hopeful that perhaps this can catalyze Congress to be explicit about what its intentions are towards uh, the prosecution of crimes in Indian country, uh, and explicit about what the boundaries of reservations are, which could have avoided the chaos of McGirt, uh, and, uh, and whether or not states have, what, what exactly the jurisdictions of states are to, to perform these criminal prosecutions, which could have avoided the, the now the chaos that we have in Castro Huerta. Uh, so I want to thank all of the witnesses that we have here today. I think this is exactly the right way to go about having this discussion, is to start by listening to the people who would be affected. Uh, I, I also am glad that we're being deliberate because obviously it's only been 12 weeks since this Supreme Court decision was handed down. I think it's going to take some time for Congress to process this issue, but I'm hopeful that at the end of this discussion, we can come up with some concrete rules that will clarify this issue for everyone, which would be Congress doing its job and not allowing the throwing it open to interpretation by the courts, which uh, I think is something that should be avoided. So I want to thank you, Madam Chairman. I yield back. Thank you very much, um, Ranking Member Obanolte. Now I'd like to transition to our first witness panel for today, 
Under our committee rules, oral statements are limited to five minutes, but you may submit a longer statement for the record if you choose. When you begin, the on-screen timer will begin counting down and it will turn orange when you have one minute remaining. I recommend that members and witnesses join remotely lock the timer on the screen. When you go over the allotted time, I will tap my gavel and kindly ask you to please wrap up your statement. After your testimony is complete, please remember to mute yourself to avoid any inadvertent background noise. The chair now recognizes the Honorable Brian Newland, who is the Sextant Secretary for Indian Affairs at the U.S. Department of the Interior. Assistant Secretary, the floor is yours. <laughs> 